It's very easy for us to approach church in, in ways that are very, uh, just merely as individuals and as consumers. Um, we, we see it merely as a, another product or service, a place we go to get something we need or to be entertained, perhaps not all too different from a grocery store or a concert or an amusement park. And we can tend to only engage to the degree that it seems to pay off. You know, we kind of, uh, we don't put it in these terms, but we use kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Is this worth my time and energy? Am I, am I getting enough out of it? Uh, to a degree, this is how we all approach church, because it's, it's built into us, not just by our culture out there, but also just our, our sin nature in us. But there are many things in God's Word that can confront and correct this approach. We, we said last week that being a part of a church, in fact, belonging to Christ in the first place, comes with a job description. You have a role and responsibility. Uh, so last week we saw just before chapter 16, Paul tell the Corinthians to all, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. There is work to be done. Uh, Paul elsewhere tells them, uh, or tells the Ephesians actually, for the leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The big idea is that if you belong to Christ, you not only belong to his church, you have a, a role to play in the church, in what God is doing. You have a job description. And the job description is, is, is about making and building up disciples. We talked about this last week. Well, today, as we get into chapter 16, we're going to cover all of chapter 16 today, we are given a number of glimpses of what this looks like. What does it look like for a church, not just the leaders, not just those on paid staff, but for a church body, a church community, to be doing the work of the Lord, the work of ministry? Now, before we get into this, I want to be very clear that the call of God in the gospel, God's call to you to, to come to him, is not, first and foremost, a call to come and get to work, come and do, come and live up to certain expectations and commands. No, the call of God, first and foremost, for us in Jesus, is a call to come and receive. Receive the undeserved grace and welcome and favor and forgiveness of your Creator God purchased through the blood of Jesus. Our identity and our worth and our status are secure not because of what we bring, not because of what we accomplish, but because of what Christ has done for us. And we cling to this from the first day onward to the last day. That is our identity. That is our worth. However, those who come to Christ are not just saved objectively, saved objectively, but changed subjectively. You are made new. You, God does a radical change in you such that your desires and your affections and your will are changed. Where you once only loved yourself, you learn to love God. Where you once found God's wills and ways to be unpleasant and intrusive, and not good, you realize and you see that they are good and right and even desirable. 
where you found it necessary to minimize and ignore and push off any idea of your sin and weakness and need, you find, now find it much sweeter and freer to bring that before God, confess it, and rest in his sufficient grace. And in all of this, as his spirit works in you, you are compelled and empowered to live for him. For those who have come to Christ and have his spirit in them, you are compelled and empowered to be doing the work of the Lord, which involves making disciples, building up, serving, and loving those who are in Christ. We talked about this a little bit last week. Today, we're going to see five characteristics of this work of the Lord. And, and we see them not so much in commands, but in kind of like watching a movie. This, this section of 1 Corinthians, as Paul wraps up, is a very personal, is very intimate, um, is a very tangible section. Uh, we see, as if watching a movie, the, the work of ministry among the Corinthians. We see Paul operating as this, this apostle and servant of this church um, in ways that are very beautiful and, and moving. So let's see, notice five things here. First of all, the work of the Lord is meeting the tangible needs of believers. The work of the Lord is meeting the tangible needs of believers. So starting at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to go carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Um, so we know from other places in Scripture, particularly Romans, uh, that the church in Jerusalem, which Paul is directing this, this money, this support to, um, specifically had a lot of poor people among it. And so Paul sees part of his ministry as helping helping the, those out, helping the poor out by uh, getting support from other churches for the poor in Jerusalem. Essentially, so if, if there are needs among believers over here and believers over here have the means, they ought to help supply this need. It's not every church for themselves. It's not every believer for himself. It's not every man or woman for him and herself. We ought to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he explains a bit more why this is the case, why this matters. Um, he calls this kind of giving in support of other believers an act of grace, an act of grace. And he says it is evidence of and confirmation of connected to God's grace towards us. So in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he, he starts with God's grace that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So you have this idea that those who are in Christ have a richness, have, have, a, have wealth, have treasure. Now he's not talking about financial or material possessions and treasures, but treasures that last. We have Christ, and in him we have all of the comforts and hope and promises and security that we need. We have, truly have everything we need. 
And because of this, because of this sufficiency and this gracious gift, we are to give sacrificially to others. Because Christ has given himself for us and met all our needs, we are to sacrificially give to others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the interesting thing, as Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, is that the purpose in this kind of giving isn't only to meet needs. It's also to bring about praise to God for His grace, for His provision through His people. So in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul goes on, he says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it is, and that's good, but through that it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, this giving is coming because of your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So this is truly incredible, if you think about it. We have the opportunity to be the evidence and confirmation of God's grace to others. We can use our money and our time and our care to bring about others' worship of God. Your money, which is temporary, which is of no eternal significance, can be used to not only meet others' needs, but to bring them to worship God. Now, there are many ways to do this, of course. You can meet individual needs as they come up. This is certainly one of the benefits in being not just coming to church, but being connected to a church where you actually know what's going on in people's lives, and they know what's going on in yours, and there's relationships for meeting needs. You can support the work of missionaries, both locally and abroad. You can support the work of this and other churches by regular giving. But there's a particular focus here, particular kind of giving to meet needs that we don't talk about enough. That is supporting other churches, supporting believers in other places. Uh, we see here Paul calling for, and the Corinthians being willing to, be aware of how other churches and believers are doing, and being willing and desirous to support them. Paul wants to help the Corinthians see that they are not the only church. They are not the only group of believers that, that matters or that has needs. There are others. And being connected to other churches and other believers is a good thing. We shouldn't be isolated. It's good to belong to one specific church and be known, but it's also good to know of other believers and be connected in some way to other churches. Um, so just thinking about our context, this is some of the benefit we have in being a part of the, the NAB, the North American Baptist Association that we're a part of. And through this, having relationships with a few hundred churches around the U.S. and Canada, and, and missionaries through that as well. In our particular northwest region of the NAB, we have about 30 churches that we are more intimately connected with, that, that know us. And even within that, I'd say there's five or six that, um, that know us very well. And, and, and we, we do some things with them, and I gather with those pastors. This is some of the same benefit that we have in being part of the three-strand network that we're a part of. If these um, six or so churches just in the North uh, Puget Sound region, we, we hear how those churches are doing. We hear what's going on in those churches and them us. 
I admit we can probably do a better job communicating this information. I regularly get emails from these churches saying, how can we be praying for you? We want to pray for you on Sunday morning. Um, and that convicts me. We, we should do a better job of doing that. Um, many of these churches supported us when we were being planted, and I, I can say that we probably wouldn't be here today without the relationships and network and support of these other churches. So there's value in in not just thinking about our needs, but other churches. So even as we think about our giving and even the budget of our church, let us not think of only our own needs, but the needs of other churches and other believers. Secondly, the work of the Lord is ongoing and urgent. Verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay there with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I. Let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Now, as you read through this and then the rest of this chapter, you feel a tension. On the one hand, Paul wants to return to Corinth, to this church that he planted, that he spent a considerable amount of time with, that he's seen a lot of the fruit of his ministry among, that he has affections for and feels responsibility towards. Like he says here, he doesn't want to just stop and see them in passing. He wants to find a time to really spend some months with them, to be mutually encouraged and refreshed by each other. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know something of this, this desire, this sweetness you feel among those who have perhaps been most influential in your life and your faith, among those whom, with whom you've walked through difficult seasons or joyful seasons, among those whom you've labored in, in the work of ministry. And you, you tend to want to gather with them and enjoy their presence and their comfort, remember things together. You want unhurried time to both rejoice and sometimes mourn. But at the same time, as we see here, there's work to be done. And so Paul is staying in Ephesus at this point where he says a wide door for effective work is opened. Until Jesus returns, there is ongoing and urgent work to be done. The gospel must be proclaimed. God's truth must be defended. Disciples must be built up and the church must be cared for and taught and protected. As he says, there's enemies to the gospel. There's opposition. There's enemies to God's purposes and plans. In other words, we can't just sit back and say, wow, what a great church we have. What a great small group or community group we have. Let's just sit in this and enjoy it and be satisfied in that. Yes, enjoy the good gifts God gives, but don't be numbed to all that God is up to by that. Don't become merely inward focused. 
We have to be willing to get out of our comfort zone and go and make disciples, as Jesus says, which takes some effort. Now, this, this discipleship, this work, this urgent and important work certainly happens through the life of the church, as we stressed last week. Discipleship begins in the church. You're gathering here on Sundays in community groups and studies. Together, one-on-one is all a part of this process. Don't stop doing that. But the purpose in that is not simply to have a good time or to, have, to get some personal benefit, although I certainly hope you do. But it is to be making disciples, to be built up as a disciple, to be building up one another, strengthening, encouraging one another, and reaching outside to make the gospel known to others. And sometimes that means going places where there will be difficulty and opposition and pushback. Notice that Paul sees a wide door for effective ministry while at the same time realizing that there, is many, there are many adversaries. The wide door for effective ministry doesn't mean like everything is going to go smoothly. The fact that there is opposition doesn't deter, discourage or deter him, deter him from seeing that there are opportunities and that he must go. It will be often easier and more comfortable to just find a group of Christians that you like and just enjoy time with them and, and, and focus inward and to retreat. But it will be much, but we must be more, we must be willing to go and work hard, which often means facing opposition, which often means success doesn't always come, at least in our terms. The third characteristic here isn't so much about what we do, but how we do it. So Paul says the work of the Lord is to be done with both courage and love. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So in the first verse there, Paul gives four commands that together convey one general idea. Be courageous, be steadfast, be strong. Keep going. Don't get too comfortable and let your guard down. Don't assume that things will always be easy, that plans will always succeed, that all of our hopes and expectations and prayers will always bring the expected results. When things go, are going well and when you are enjoying the church, don't expect that that is guaranteed. We don't have that promise. Stay watchful and alert and vigilant. Diligent. Here we go. And when you have commands like this to stand firm in the faith, to be steadfast, when you have such commands in Scripture, it is always about both doctrinal integrity, that is what you believe, and ethical, moral integrity, that is what you do, living in light of the truths. It is not standing firm to hold on to orthodox belief, but living out of step with them. And it is not standing firm to outwardly live a very moral and ethical life, but be careless and unconcerned about what you believe. No, what God is up to and what God is working in us as we 
come to him and behold him, is people who love and honor him with their whole lives, who, who stand firm in both what they believe about him and in how they live out those beliefs. So stand firm. Be strong. Now, having said that, perhaps the next part, verse 14, comes as a bit of a surprise. Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. But obviously, this is a thoroughly Christian command. Standing firm, being strong and courageous is in no way contradictory to doing everything in love. This is summed up nicely in that Ephesians phrase, speaking the truth in love. Now, I've seen that taken to mean that as long as you're standing firm and courageous, you're being loving. But why give this command to do everything that you do in love, including your watchfulness and courageousness and your standing firm? Why clarify that you have to do that in love if love means nothing, if love adds nothing to that? By all means, Stand firm and be bold and courageous and steadfast. Cling to what is right. But consider how you might do that in love. You can speak the truth and it not be loving. You can speak the truth fully intending to bring unnecessary hurt and pain. You can speak the truth to tear others down. It's called gossip and other things. You can be careless in your words and harm others even when you're saying things that are true. You can even, even stand up for the truth of God in an unloving, considerate way that is not, not simply being confident, but being prideful, and bitter, or mocking, and selfish. It matters that we stand firm in love. This doesn't, of course, mean budging on the truth or removing the offense that is in the gospel, but it does mean something. We are called as we have been loved, as Jesus has loved us, so we are to love others. Fourth glimpse into the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is done under faithful leadership. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. So these who devoted themselves to the service of the saints, and to whom the Corinthians are called to be subject to, is a reference to some leaders in the church, perhaps the elders, we don't know for sure. You find a similar exhortation in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So on the one hand, while all believers, the church, is to be doing the work of the Lord, abounding in the work of the Lord, this work is helped and benefited by those who are called to serve and admonish and equip the church in this. The Bible uses three interchangeable terms to describe the role of those who lead the church and, and do this equipping work, elders, overseers, shepherds. These are those who fit the character qualifications in, in 1 Timothy and Titus, 
who are servant leaders of the church under the authority of Christ, who will give an account to God for those under their care. This is a weighty role. Pastor and, and author Mark Dever writes, it is a serious spiritual deficiency in a church, either to have leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. A healthy church that is doing the work of the Lord needs humble and faithful, godly, loving, and trustworthy leaders and members who acknowledge and trust and follow their example in leading. This is not a call to blindly trust, but it is a call to encourage and want and hold accountable your leadership. And it's also a call for some of you to aim to be the sort of humble, faithful, trustworthy, godly, loving people that can lead and equip others and set a good example. I don't believe there is anything, any such thing as too many leaders, too many elders, just like there's no such thing as too much bacon. All right. <laughs> Fifth glimpse into the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord brings refreshment and joy. Final verses. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you hear the, the tenderness and the warmth in these words? Like Paul is obviously writing to people he knows and have spent time with and has, wa have walked, has walked with doing the work of ministry and discipling. You hear the longing and the sweetness of, of fellowship that he expresses. I know that word fellowship is kind of a Christian buzzword that we probably use too often, but there is something sweet and comforting and refreshing with being present with believers who we know, who know us. And surely this is not by chance. Surely this is a gift of God's grace. I thank God for the joy and the refreshment that I receive from all of you. As we see God at work among us, as we wonder at what God has done and is doing, as, we've, as I walk through difficult seasons with, with many of you, as we walk through seasons where we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel and still wonder what God is going to do and together cling to his goodness, we are mutually encouraged by each other's faith and faithfulness. I think of the refreshment and joy I had uh, a couple months ago when I spent some time with some pastors at a, at a pastor's conference, men who, as we say, are daily in the trenches together, pastoring and doing the work of the Lord and walking with people. 
I'm sure you can bring to mind what I'm talking about. And like we said earlier, while this sort of refreshment and joy and and sweet fellowship is not everything, is not the goal and can even become an idol, it is a very sweet thing. And the thing is, it's not really something that you find by seeking after it, right? It's not something you can really create. It comes as you seek the Lord and do His work together. The, the point is not to pursue this thing, this feeling of fellowship, but to pursue the Lord and, and do that in community, and this often comes as a result. And it's the gift of God. Now, as you're reading this last section and you're feeling these warm fuzzies, for lack of a better, better term, in uh, Paul's affection for the Corinthians, then you get to verse 22, and all of that seems to come to a abrupt halt. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul, what are you, what are you doing here? It's kind of a shocking statement. What is Paul getting at? Well, the content of this and the concern of this whole letter has been love for the Lord. Um, all that Paul has been teaching and correcting and responding to the Corinthians' questions, in all of this, he, he has the goal of their love for the Lord. Paul's desire is that those who claim Christ and those who are part of the church would truly know and love and follow the Lord. And he says here that if there are those who reject this teaching and who reject Christ, who refuse to love the Lord, let God's curse come on them. Now, this isn't to fail to wish for their repentance, but it is to leave them to God's justice. And the burden here is Paul's love for the church. The burden here is Paul's passion for the health and protection and effectiveness and steadfastness of the church, especially when there are those who would ruin that, and especially when those would come from the very, the inside the very church. But this is also a stark reminder of the dividing line between all of humanity, which is Christ. As Paul said at the very beginning in chapter 1, there are those who boast in the Lord and who find the cross to be the, the very pinnacle of God's wisdom and God's glory. And boast and rejoice and glory in Christ. And then there are those who find the cross to be foolish, meaningless, weak, even offensive, and reject the Lord. And there is, in the end, no middle ground. There is, in the end, no, 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 no middle ways. There's no merely respecting Christ, just kind of revering some of his teaching. No, you either come to him and love him, or you refuse to come and hate him. And perhaps it doesn't feel like hate, or it doesn't look like hate, but if you truly, or if someone truly beheld all that Christ is and has done and all that he claims and all that he offers and all that he commands, you have no middle option. You love him or you hate him. And the knowledge of this reality should compel us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
the thing that matters most about us, the thing that matters most about anyone, is whether or not they have beheld and have come to love their Creator God and come to Him for life and salvation. We are either in Christ through faith in His death and resurrection or apart from Christ. And this makes all the difference in the world, both now and into eternity. And if we are in Christ, we are called to be doing the work of the Lord, to be serving Him, serving His church, to proclaim His grace and His glory and His goodness, to make His known, Him known, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, including in Stanwood, in Camano, in Arlington, in Marysville, there is much work to be done. There is an urgency, there is a weightiness to all of this. And my hope and prayer is that as we, we hear this message, church, I pray this doesn't come across as merely a pep talk. Come on, do better. Get it together. No, I, I pray that this comes as a reminder that there is so much more at stake in this life than we tend to realize. And that the grace that we have been given is meant to awaken us to the glory of God, to the work of God, to the mission of God, to the promises and plan of God, and to compel us and motivate and strengthen us to live appropriately in light of that glory. We can be so small-minded. We can lose sight of this so easily. Pray that God would keep us and compel us in this, continue to ground us in his goodness and grace towards us in Jesus. Compel us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, as we saw last week, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Even in the midst of much weakness and suffering and Failure to see success. Your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.